Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Listeners, welcome to another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Today, we'll be reviewing the 1981 classic, The Beyond, about Liza and the many perils that await her. I'm thrilled and excited to cover this one. How about you? Troy? Well, that depends, Roger. Are we talking about Liza Minnelli? I fucking wish we were. Oh, my God. Imagine if we got a cameo from that broad. Uh, This is one thing this movie is lacking, but one of the few things it's lacking, because this movie does give you everything and the fucking kitchen sink, doesn't it, Troy? (laughs) God. Uh, Yes, it does. Um, This movie is a... Feast for your eyes, literally. I, I, I hadn't seen this for a long time. You know, when you, when you, when you suggested this to me, I always get this film confused with his other film in the Gates of Hell trilogy, House by the Cemetery. Uh, I always get these two confused. So that's that's what I had in my mind. So when this film opened, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This isn't what I thought it was. But I had seen this. Um, boy, had I seen this. I mean, I feel like if you've seen this film. There are certain um, scenes that are definitely etched in your mind that I think we're going to get to, correct? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, whatever you think about this movie, at the end of the day, one thing you can't deny is the sheer amount of just, like, gung-ho, like, we're going to fucking give it a shot. We're going to do all of these really graphic kill sequences, and we're going to pour everything we have into these moments to make them look as disgusting and gory and violent as possible. And, you know, there are a few moments here and there that haven't necessarily dated well, but for the most part, I really just am shocked at how creative these people got <laughs> with, with making this this movie. I mean, like, some of these kills, holy shit, like, the things they're doing and what they're doing with, a, honestly, a lack of of the means to pull off some of the stuff that we can do today. I mean, if you look back and you look at those fucking spiders and you see that some of those spiders are in fact made of like wire and rope and like, like you can tell these things are fake, but it adds a layer of charm to this film because you can tell that they are just fucking pouring everything they have into this movie. And it makes me appreciate it so much more. Well, it's really Lucio Fulci at, Perhaps not his best, but I mean, this, I feel like this illustrates what you're going to get with a Lucio Fulci movie, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of his trademark, just kind of ethereal atmosphere, surreal atmosphere. Uh, A lot of the plot points aren't really linear and they don't make a lot of sense when you, when you really stop to think about it. But the, the showcase really for a Fulci film is 
the set pieces, particularly the murder set pieces, right? I mean, that's that's where he shines. That's where his you know creativity and his artistic ability come in that, that really make him stand out among, I would say, virtually any horror director out there. I mean, I, I love Argento, but uh, Fulci does something that is just, I think, um, a, a level above Argento in terms of orchestrating these death scenes that I would argue Argento's death scenes are a lot of times more beautiful, if that makes sense. Uh, but Fulci definitely amps it up with the uh, visceral disgust that I think you should feel if you're watching someone be murdered, right? Yeah, well, that's that's definitely uh, something I can, I can jive with, for sure. Because the thing with Fulci that stands out to me is the level of just ingenuity. I mean... It's, yeah, it may not be as pretty of a film as some of his other peers, you know, but just the amount of slime and and liquid and blood and pus and like it's just so detailed and they they let these moments linger for so long and it just really it, it, it sits with you in a way that even if you're chuckling along with it, you still can't help but be like, oh my God, like under your breath, you're like, this is really fucking gross. And it takes a lot to really gross me out these days. And for a film from this era to still have that impact, you know, I I, I definitely have to salute him as a filmmaker because I'll never not want to watch a kill that he's come up with. Definitely gross is the correct way to... To describe these 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 deaths, and not just these deaths, but you look at you look at films like The Gates of Hell, and you know that has one of the probably the most disgusting, gross out scenes I've ever seen, and that's when that woman is puking out her guts. I mean, he's he's definitely a a master of of disgust, gore, disgusting gore, not beautiful gore. I would argue, like Argento has mastered beautiful gore. Fulce is disgusting gore. And they both work equally well for the types of films that each of them are making. Yeah, I mean, we are we are diving into yeah the the beyond from 1981, which is really is this is this the first Italian film that me and you have discussed together? I know uh, you did Deep Red, and unfortunately, I couldn't be on that episode, so we had a guest on that that was quite knowledgeable about that film. But I don't think me and you have done an Italian. Well, we did Demons. Never mind, we did Demons. That was. That was years ago, Roger. That was when we were infants in podcasting and had no clue what we were doing. But this, yeah, I mean, I don't think we've revisited an Italian film since. Yeah, and I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, I've got to say, like, I'm one of those people. I'm gonna just get it out there. I'm I have I have ADHD like the Dickens, and I get so distracted. And for me, I enjoy a film when it's dubbed, but I I, I need it to be of a certain quality like of a certain caliber and i know some of you are going to get pissed off at me but literally it's just i struggle with films that have bad dubbing and I've, i'm i'm just gonna put it out there i'm just gonna <laughs> i'm gonna address the elephant in the room and, and state that this film to me is an example of a piece of cinema in which the final product uh was greatly negatively impacted uh, by the by, the poor dubbing by you know some of the the voiceover work and and there's such a disconnect at times that it really does pull me out of it and I hate it I hate that about this film and I hate that about me that I just I can't help but be distracted by it um, but I have you know I've seen other films that have had a really 
great mix, you know, a really, a really great job with solid actors who are pulling off great performances. And even though the, the vocals seem separate from the, the, the actual actors that are what they are speaking and what they are saying, it still translates because that, like that emotional element that you really want to take away from that vocal performance. It's still in there. This film does not have that. This film has some of like the, the most wooden, just some of the, the worst dubbing I've, I've heard in a long time. And it really does like knock it down just a couple of pegs for me. And I, I know some of you are going to get pissed, but I have to put that out there. I have to say it. Well, it's, it's flat. It is flat. There's a real lack of emotion in any of the characters' reactions to anything. And it does have to do with, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head with the dubbing. And it does get to, but to me, it, I will I will just say for me, it didn't really distract me or take anything away from the movie. It just adds to the kind of the surrealness that this film, the atmosphere that this film conveys. I think this is an example for me where that kind of flat, emotionless, uh, dialogue and reaction just works with the, 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 within the context of the film to just kind of amp up the uneasiness and the, just the, like I said, the strange atmosphere that this film creates, because let's, let's, I mean, we can get into it. You want to get into it before? I mean, we're, we're, I think I have a lot to say, so I think we should just get into it and just let all this out. Right. I mean, let's, let's dive in. Let's real quick acknowledge our listeners. You know what to do. Five star votes. Go get the work done. We're not going to linger anymore. Let's dive right into this film because I'm ready. I'm chomping at the bit for it. Well, the film, the film, we have to acknowledge the film takes place in one of my favorite cities um, in the world, and that is New Orleans, Louisiana. And I, I do appreciate that we do get some shots of the French Quarter here in the film. But the film itself opens up at a hotel, for lack of a better they keep calling this place a hotel, Roger. This is a two-story house. I mean, that would be like this is like calling my house a hotel. I, I kept wondering like how many people can stay in this fucking place. It's 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 no bigger than my house. Like she's every uh, we will get there because when Eliza inherits this hotel, she's acting like she's going to make a goddamn fortune off it. I'm like, honey, you could probably keep you could probably have five people stay there at one time. Come on. I agree, and I overall like there's a lot of really beautiful locations in this film. But there's a few of them that do feel a bit a tad forced. Uh, we come up to a hospital later. I don't know if that's really a hospital. Uh, they have a sign in front of it that says hospital, much like the hotel has a banner that says hotel. But that's all it's got. <laughs> it is. It's a little forced. No, it's this. There is there is nothing about this property that looks like a hotel. There's not a there's not a check in desk. There's there's nothing. Hotel Louisiana, 1927. The opening we, we is it like ominous shot on this house, which is be- very beautiful. It's like your typical your typical Southern Gothic style uh, two story home with a wraparound porch that's sitting on a on a, a swamp, and we see some men slowly rowing down the bayou, and of course it's thundering and lightning all to create this atmosphere. And in the hotel, the, I guess the lady is supposed she the hotel owner, I guess. We don't really know. I guess she's the hotel owner, but she has this book that becomes a prominent part of the film. It's called the Ebon. Is that correct, Roger? Ebon? Uh, Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. So she finds this book and her curiosity, she starts reading from it. But we also find out that there is an artist uh, who is upstairs in room number 36, which would indicate, Roger, that this 
hotel has 36 rooms, right? And it there's no way I, i've been looking at this building and i'm like how long like how far how far back does this building go that maybe we're not seeing an extension or something here because it does literally look like it's like a pretty house i'm sure it has maybe four bedrooms but it doesn't have 36 of them like who are they fucking kidding <laughs> but this 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 painter his name is schweik and um what we find out is apparently these men who are on the can- the canoe and actually a whole bunch of men pull up in, in their trucks and they they ascend upon the hotel. They go in and the owner is there reading from that book about all of the prophecies of the Iban are included in this book. So whoever this Iban is, I don't know if it's some sort of like demon or messenger from hell, but this book supposedly has some sort of curse linked to it or... I don't fucking know. It's never really explained. I'm filling in gaps here, guys. But while she's reading the book, the men go up to Schweik's room, barge in, and accuse him of being a warlock, and then just begin to violently beating this poor man with a chain. He's very homely, this man as well. I just want to point that out. Which, I mean, it it works for the character. But I'm just saying, very hard to look at. Um, But um, I do, I want to acknowledge that I very much like, like, the sepia tint that they have. You know, they open on this really, like, kind of just shadowy, dark, like I said, sepia. Uh, It looks almost like like they're... throwing it back to like the 1800s at first in a way but it ends up being you find out this is like 60 years ago that this happened they do give it a time frame when you jump into the future jump into the at that time the uh, uh, you know the present day um and so this whole moment it's really well constructed and it's really pretty and you mentioned that you know they don't provide a ton of backstory or exposition like you're right the book like you get a rundown like you're given a basic idea of what the book is like what its purpose is but in some ways i think the simplicity here works in the film's favor like there are so many what the fuck moments in this movie that eventually you just kind of learn to roll with it like there's kind of a separation from reality here um and so i don't mind the vagueness so much i think it kind of just works with everything else that's going on but this whole moment here it's like i mean right off the bat we're launching into a moment of extreme gore i mean he's not holding back right away this dude walks up he hits the guy in the face with a chain and you see this massive meaty facial wound liquidy dripping i mean there is so much moisture in this film like the sound of trickling liquids and slime and like it's so just like gross the audio is gross and and he doesn't hold back he gives it to you like right away you get this disgusting sequence of this guy getting beaten with these chains and nobody's helping him aren't there other people in this hotel uh we we see that um african-american gentleman that's like sitting at downstairs at the on the chair that's watches the guy comes in we get the the hotel owners there if there's 36 rooms there has to be some other people there. nobody helps this poor guy he is screaming fucking bloody murder as these people beat him mercilessly with this chain and then not only that they they drag him down into the basement and tell him that he He's the reason why now that this town and this hotel is going to be cursed. He proclaims, he's screaming, he's like, this hotel was built on one of the seven doors of hell and only I can save you. But they don't listen because they get him down to the basement and continue to beat the holy shit out of him with this chain, Roger. And yes, you are right. I mean, we are getting wide open gashes appearing on his chest, his arms, his legs and blood and shit is oozing out. And if that's not bad enough, 
is this what is this? Is it melted plastic? Oh my god! It's like they like they basically like tar him. I mean, it's white, but still, Ugh. like it's like yeah, it's melted something, and then they just fucking splash it all over his face, and you get like a five minute long facial melt sequence. Like it is so so elongated this moment. It's so drawn out, uh, and you're just watching a dude's face melt. I mean, it's a it's a it's a fake head, but you're just watching it melt. For for yes, and you're right. It goes on for a long time. I was like, whew, looking at my watch now. Um, something you said about the effects. I mean, it's it's very clear in specific shots, even though with a sepia filter and everything, it's very clear that this is a fake head. I mean, it's definitely paper mache at points. You can totally tell, and, and that continues throughout the film. But I just want to say, Roger, honestly, I don't give a fuck because this was 1981, and nobody was attempting to do shit like this. So I can look past all of the flaws that I think a lot of people, younger people, especially that would watch this film and are used to like the big budget, glossy gore films that we see in theaters. Now would look at this and be like, Oh, look how cheesy that looks. Oh, it's paper mache. Oh, it's so fake. It's definitely so fake. You could tell, but I, I gotta, I gotta give it kudos because, like I said, the creativity, the creativity, the the forward thinking in some of these gore effects—that was something only Fulci was doing. Oh, I'm so happy that you are touching on this because I even feel like what you're saying about the practical effects. I mean, honestly, I think it translates to all aspects of this film. This movie is is really ballsy in that it doesn't necessarily have the biggest budget to work with, but it's really pushing its limits as to what it can pull off and constantly like just striving to give the viewers a, a, an experience that's unlike anything that had come before it. And it really pays off. It may look a bit dated. You're right. The effects may look fake, but it, there's a timelessness to this movie that I, I don't care. I don't care how fake everything looks. It just works. Well, and I feel like it speaks volumes to... Fulci's uh, dedication and fearlessness as a filmmaker, because Roger, you know this, me and you have both made films. I've made three slasher films where we use practical effects. And, you know, I have always been adamant about, I, I, I want to show the gore. I, I'm not a fan of cutaway sequences. And there are, are some instances in some of my death scenes and in, in some of my films where unfortunately um, the effect or whatnot did not go as planned. So I had to cut away a lot sooner than I, what I wanted to, but I feel like Fulci is a type of filmmaker that, you know, uh, he had a, he had a clear vision and he wanted to push boundaries. And what I have to admire about him is that, yes, he, 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 he had to know at certain points when he was filming some of the stuff that it was going to look fake or it wasn't going to look the best, but he, he did it anyways. And he found creative ways with, with camera angles and, and, and stuff like that to fulfill his vision because Fulci is definitely a filmmaker that does not want to cut away from the gore. He wants to show everything. And I, I, I admire him because a lot of filmmakers who are a little bit more of perfectionists would have been like, you know what, this isn't working. We'll just, we'll just cut away. Not Fulci. He's going to, he's going to go full extreme no matter what it takes, no matter what it looks like, because that's his, that's his vision. And I have to admire him tremendously for that. Yeah. The word respect definitely comes to mind here. This is a filmmaker who I respect the hell out of because he represents everything that I feel exists in me as an indie filmmaker. I know it exists in you too. It's, it's just 
a true diehard dedication to the craft and a dedication to his vision. And you're right. He doesn't settle. He would rather show it flaws and all and say, Hey, this is what I made. I created this and I'm proud of it because this is what I was able to do. And I pushed myself as far as I could. And I pushed my team as hard as I could. And this is what we have. I respect the hell out of that. Um, and if anything, I want to take a little of that inspiration and inject it to my, my own work moving forward because it is, it pays off here. I feel it absolutely pays off. So yes, during this five minute face melting scene, we do get an intercut of a voiceover from the hotel owner reading from the book. And it basically, she's saying, whoever opens one of the seven gates of hell will slowly allow evil to enter the world. Before we see her like face and in, in the book, like engulf in flames. And then we get the fiery opening credits and, you know, for an opening sequence, I mean, kudos, kudos. We get, we get a lot of, we're left with a lot of questions, but from a, a visionary standpoint, I mean, I think it's packs quite a punch and strong opening and really an intense introduction to kind of this like very fantastical world that we're going to be introduced to because there's quite a lot of fantasy that comes up here Um, this is not something that's rooted in reality so i like how big this opening feels uh one thing that really elevates it is i mean let's talk about the score like this score is honestly in a lot of ways it's almost like not what I would expect or not what I would think would work in this kind of moment. It's got a lot of like funk infusion. There's a lot of like funk guitar and bass. There's some flutes and uh, there's some chorales at time, like very like uh, eerie choral vocals, but it always has this kind of like funky kind of just almost, like, I almost want to say upbeat in a way tempo to it, though it has this very haunting element to it that keeps it, still rooted within that world. Um, And I think that that score makes a lot of sense to me because this is such a fantastical movie. And I feel like they wanted to elevate that, you know? And so they, they added the score that just really is huge. It's so big and so true to that era of cinema. You know, those Italian horror cinema was always boasting these really great composers and just these really like creative, inventive scores that really elevated these films and, and, made them so memorable. And I do think this film is an example of that. Well, also keep in mind, Roger, that the film, you know, was released in the United States on DVD edited, uh, under the title, um, the seven doors of death and that particular version. And I remember this DVD, I actually have it or had it. If I could find it, I I still have this. I, I bought it at Best Buy probably in the like, late nineties when it first hit the American market for purchase, um, it had a completely different score and a lot of the gore was cut out of it. So, you know, luckily we are getting the, we, we now can watch the version that is Fulci's version with the original score, with all of the gore intact, because for the longest time, if you were an American, the only version of this film you were seeing was the seven doors of death, which again, heavily, heavily edited. A lot of the death scenes were quite, quite, trimmed down so i'm glad we finally get to see it in in its glory with this score because i do like the score a lot i I totally agree with you now we cut to louisiana it's 1981 and we find out through just this film what i do like about this film roger is that there's not a lot of like lingering scenes of like character development or conversation what we do find out it's we find out through like 
two pieces of dialogue. And then we just move into the action because what this film really is, is sort of a short, a showcase for these elaborate death scene set pieces. Um, and the characters around it, I think are, are secondary, but that's, that's a lot of Italian films. I don't, I'm not blaming Fulci at all that Argento does the same thing. So we don't get strong characters in this film. This Liza woman that we, that is the, I guess the protagonist is, is there's nothing really memorable about her. There's nothing that really makes me like her. There's nothing really that makes me root for her simply because we don't spend hardly any time with her. We just found out, we just find out that she, she's talking to her contractor, Martin, and we find out that she inherited this hotel and she's trying to get a, a little bit of work done on it so that she can open it up. And like I said, She's acting like, oh my God, once this place opens, I'm going to, I'm set. I'm like, honey, how? I, I don't understand. It doesn't look like this is, it's, this isn't like it's on Bourbon Street. It's in the middle of nowhere. I can't imagine there's people like waiting on, you know, with bated breath for this hotel to open so that they can book a room there. I'm like, I don't know, honey, go back to New York. But, um, she, she says hi to Larry, the painter who's up on a scaffold and he says hi back and that he's almost done painting. And when he turns around to, comp- to continue painting, he sees those fucking Roger, those fucking milky white eyes. Yeah, you see those eyes a lot throughout the course of this movie. And it is a rather striking visual. Um, but I mean, so quickly, so quickly, we're introduced to these characters and right away, someone's dying. Like at, when you say that the characters in this film are not strong, like I'm telling you, everybody that exists in this world is secondary to the ways that they're dying. Like it's death comes first and then it's their backstory. There are some characters who are introduced here who I don't know, like I don't know what their motivation is. I don't know how they tie into the story. I don't know anything about them. I barely know their name. They come and they go. You only see them once. Then they go away for a long time and then they come back and they die. And that's most people in this movie, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but again, Roger, that's so many Italian films, um, particularly these Italian like splatter gore films that it's all about the death sequences. It's nothing about the characters. I mean, I don't think you can think of really one particular Italian gore film that has a strong character. I guess, you know, maybe like Suspiria with with the lead there, the Jessica Harper character. Uh, But most of the time, again, you're right. It's just, they're just fodder for how they're going to die. And Larry, he's our first victim because when he sees those fucking milky white eyes, he tumbles off the, the scaffold and falls, you know, 20 feet below hits the ground hard. And they they take him inside, Roger, and this poor man, he is dying. And they, they don't seem too concerned about it. I mean, they're not trying to help him. Blood is gushing from his mouth, his head, and he, they have him laid on the couch. And they're just like conversing like normal. They're like, oh, well, when's the... When's the doctor, man? This man, this man is dying. Do something. This is when I, you know, bring up my issue with with the quality of the dub. And I know what you mean when you're saying that it it adds to it. It does, but it also does make it very hard to take anything <laughs> these people are saying seriously. And like it, people seem so unenthused. There are some scenes here where people are not reacting to what is happening at all and it doesn't make any sense and it it, it kind of takes you out of the moment a bit but this poor man larry is <laughs> like he, he's going through it man like this poor man i this is 
this is internal bleeding. This is brain damage. And he's just sitting there on this couch. And and then the doctor arrives, and he is very nonchalant <laughs> about this whole thing. He gets out of his car. He saunters up the porch. He walks inside, and he's, he immediately just opens this guy's eyes up. And he says, let's get him some water. He needs to go to a hospital. No fucking duh. Like, clearly this man needs to be in, in a hospital. And so he instructs them to get water. They don't even have water because the pipes aren't working. And so then he says, let's move him. And they proceed to lift this man who I am confident has broken his back. <laughs> like, I am confident this man's back is broken. And they lift him like a sack of potatoes. And they just carry him out, out of the room by his legs. And I'm like, that is the last thing you're supposed to do when somebody has that kind of a, of a fall. <laughs> You definitely don't want to be moving them around like that. You're breaking that man's back even more. This doctor is clearly not skilled in his trade. I'm sorry. I had to get that off my chest. I thought he was very unprofessional. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I will say, though, about the doctor, Roger, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but swoon. Handsome. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, Dr. John. But no, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah, none of these people could give a shit less that people are dying horrific ways around him. It's, it just becomes comical. Um, yeah, she doesn't have water. How fucking convenient because the basement's flooded. So as they're following the, the doctor out with, with the poor Larry's body, uh, Martin does notice the, a painting laying against the wall. And it happens to be the same painting that Schweike was, was painting at the beginning of the film. So it comes back into play. Why it's still there, who knows? Um, but then suddenly... The room service bell for room 36 rings. And Martin says, oh, you have a guest already? And Liza says, no, nobody's here. So they just chalk it up to it being a malfunction or Arthur, which I, okay, I can buy. Hotel's old. The the shape that this hotel looks like it's in, I, I could buy that it is a, a malfunction. But it is our first kind of sign that something is awry in room 36. And you don't get a ton more than that for a hot minute for her character. Um, But you do get introduced to an array of other characters who are kind of keeping this place going. Um, It seems to have like a whole staff. Um, You know, she has, like you mentioned, Arthur, who I don't know what the fuck is going on with that man, the sweaty man with the bad teeth. But he comes into play. There's Martha, who makes me think of you, Troy. I like her. I don't know her story. But yeah, like, I mean, so there is this whole kind of staff that's working here. But like, did they come with the hotel? Like, I'm so confused. Like, Well, she says that later on in the film. She's like, oh, I can't fire him because they came with the hotel. I'm like, how do people like what have they been doing those hotels been, I, I don't know. This hotel does not look like it's been in operation for years. And so what are these people doing there? They're not, who's paying them? What are they getting paid for? So many questions, so many questions. Um, finally, Joe, the plumber, Joe, the plumber, Roger, Joe, the plumber, Joe, the plumber shows up to work on the pipes in the basement and the flood in the basement. And when Liza takes him to the basement, they ominously run into Martha who comes out of the shadows. What the fuck is her problem? Okay, so weird, weird interaction between her and Joe. Like they obviously recognize each other. Did you get that vibe? Is he like, was he fucking her at some point? This woman has one expression the entire movie. She's dour. She's just this surly woman. And yeah, like it's it's just the way that the scene is shot. Like it's all very, you know, very extreme type 
on their face. Like it's like it's it's almost invasive. And she comes out of the shadows. It's so mysterious. I don't know where this woman comes from. And poor Joe, who seems honestly very pleasant, he's just there to do his job. This poor guy gets so fucked over this whole movie. Uh, so he shows up, and yeah, there's this like weird energy between the two of them, where she's like, "I cleared a path for Joe," and he's like, "Well, thanks for doing that." And then they go off to find what is an underground river of sorts, which this basement, Troy, like, don't get me started on this basement. I don't know what she thinks she's going to do with this basement. There's no fixing this basement. Yeah. It's, it's completely flooded. I mean, we're talking four feet of water. I don't know how you even f- begin to fix the pipe. I'm no plumber, but I, I, how do you begin to fix the pl- pipes? This place is a fucking labyrinth and every, every nook and cranny of this place is full of water or leaking water. I don't think Joe by himself is going to be able to to fix this. It's a very small team that's going in to fix a very major catastrophe in this house. I would just think that he would at least have an assistant. But Martha, she's so like just sinister. She says, I made a pathway just for Joe. And then they leave Joe down in the basement to, to go up to, because apparently Liza's going to town to get some things. I don't know. So he he starts to get to work. He sees a hole, in, uh, one of many leaking holes in the wall and starts hammering away until it becomes a bigger hole that he's able to crawl through, which leads to just a bigger room with more water and more holes. Upstairs, Roger, we are introduced to your favorite character, Arthur, who is in Liza's room looking through her drawers. There's all these very weird, suspicious things that happen with these people that really have no payoff. Like Martha, yes, she's made to look very, very suspicious. Like you think she's going to be a major villain in this film. Not at all. She doesn't have anything to do with the story. She's literally just there to die. But they, they make her seem so maniacal. And then this guy going through this lady's possessions looking all sweaty and damp suspicious again very suspicious and you think that he's gonna i don't know be somehow tied into the evil shenanigans that are going on but again not at all like he's barely in the movie so it's just such a weird choice to give these characters these very defining traits that make them seem very i mean honestly like negative and then not doing anything with it at all yeah, it's like they they want to make all of these people seem really suspicious, but then it becomes for no no reason really, uh, which is really the case with one particular character that we're introduced to here real quick. But I mean, yeah, Arthur tells Liza that you know he's just looking for keys because he wants to clean the room, and she's like, "Well, you need to go clean the chimney; it's clogged." In the basement, Joe is continuing hammering away, and he he makes another hole in the wall, and when all of a sudden. A hand busts out of this hole and gouges his fucking eyeball out. I mean, right then and there, that quick. Joe is gone. Oh, this poor guy. Like, he really does not know at all what he's getting into, aside from a fucking shit job that he's probably pissed about. But, like, he's just knocking down walls, wading waist deep into ponds of water. And then he walks up to this wall. It starts to, like, deteriorate. And all of a sudden, this fucking hand just comes out of nowhere and, yeah, brutally kills the poor guy. And it was like, whoa. Um, But, yeah, it made him feel very disposable. He does remain a consistent, though. Like, he comes back 
time after time after time throughout the course of the movie and is rather a major element, um, but in a very much a different way, in a different form. On our way to town, I, I like this shot. I really like this shot because I, I I actually know this bridge. I've driven across this bridge that Liza is driving across. This is a real bridge right out, uh, outside of uh, New Orleans. And how, you know, it, it, it looks, I mean, this, this bridge, at least from my experience, is usually full of traffic. So seeing it just like isolated, her, the only car on it with that, that it goes back to like that sepia filter it's such a beautiful shot um and she's driving down this bridge and all of a sudden she runs into just this person standing in the middle of the road who when liza gets out this person like opens their eyes and again it's those milky white fucking eyes and the person says you must be liza i'm emily and it, it's just unsettling. It's really unsettling. Like, th- just the, the, like I said, the isolation of this bridge and like the the filter on the. It, I really, really like this shot a lot. I'm sorry, but I do think this woman Emily has absolutely no business being on the road like this. Like being a I, being that she's blind, and I'm and more power to her. But this is just inappropriate that she would be wandering. <laughs> That she would be wandering a fucking like like a it looks like a freeway over a fucking ocean like I mean yeah what is it it's running over a lake right I mean it's a, it is a beautiful shot but how dare she put poor Liza in this position where Liza has no choice but get out and help this blind woman and you know Liza must be like what the fuck how the fuck did you get to be out here it is very mysterious and it is a beautiful shot but like if I were. If I were Liza, I wouldn't even be letting that woman into my vehicle because immediately upon seeing this blind woman and her German shepherd in the middle of this very long bridge, like for her to even have gotten there already seems off to me and somewhat paranormal. So I would just be like, well, I wish you the best. Um, I hope you get to land. I'll be on my way. The Emily character, Roger, is a character that really confuses me because, yes, there's a huge paranormal element to her character, but then what, what kind of happens to her character I don't know. I don't know what specific purpose this character serves. Is is she real? Is she only visible to Liza? Um, I, I have a lot of questions that even, even upon several viewings of the film, I just could not come up with a concrete answer for, but I guess we'll, we can discuss it as the film progresses, but yeah, I mean, and, and you talk about like just characters lack of, reaction to things like any normal person seeing this woman standing in the middle of the road would have a i would have a i would think would have a pretty big reaction no liza just gets out and acts like it's it's nothing my thing with emily is she really is a pretty major aspect of the film overall like in a way she's almost like she's providing a lot of exposition you know she's the blonde that we saw at the beginning of the film and now she's come into play but now she's mysteriously blind she has a very uh, again striking visual aesthetic you know um it's just it's creepy everything about her is creepy when you look at the promo material for the movie she's all over it she's often the first visual you see from this film like one of the most recognizable aspects of this movie so there's an element of her that's really like standout and i appreciate her presence in the movie but boy oh boy are you right in saying that like overall i don't understand how she got to be there i don't understand how she became very much what is proven to be interconnected between like this other, like other realm and, and 
the present and and, and here in this realm whatever earth may be she's like a she's like a clairvoyant almost between the two but it almost implies that she in turn is like not real you know like when you go to her house all of a sudden her house is like decayed so it doesn't make sense for her ending for what happens to her it just really like is not thought out it feels like there's just a lot of aspects here that are not explained that really needed to be explained Again, plot is secondary. Plot is secondary to getting us to the murder set pieces. And like, if she's the same woman that was at the beginning of the film, who who I took as the hotel owner or the the, the hotel keeper, why isn't she? Why doesn't she live there? Like, why is she living now in this house outside the? I mean, yeah, there's so many questions. I have no idea. And then it makes less sense with what happens to her, right? Particularly if she is like supposed to be paranormal or some sort of supernatural entity. And so, and in fact, Eliza is, is so like, I guess, enamored with, with Emily that she does take her or she does go back to Emily's house. And we do get the scene of them walking up to Emily's house. It's beautiful. There's lots of, of, of trees and it's, it's very, it's very homey looking. It's, it's, it's quite nice for, for a blind woman to be living in, um, by herself. I mean, who there's nobody else there. There's her dog. I don't know. It's just this whole thing with, with Emily. I, I I appreciate the character because of the, the creepy aspect that it adds or that she adds, but just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, she's there for honestly, the purpose of explaining things and nothing more. But you do get a lot of key tidbits about what's going on from her. So her presence is welcome. I just I just wish they would have given a little more explanation. But whatever. I digress. Well, we go back to the hotel. And in the basement, Martha's nosy ass is snooping around looking for Joe, who she does find kneeling down on the ground. And when she goes to touch him, he looks up and his face is is mutilated beyond recognition. And he's like coughing. He's not dead. He's like coughing up his guts and blood and it's disgusting. And then she looks over at, at, at one of the puddles in the basement. And now we see uh, what ends up being Schweike's decayed corpse. The man who was beaten to death and burned to death at the beginning is emerging from a puddle. And again, this woman does not scream. She does not run away in terror. Uh, she just stands there looking like she's li- literally, she's looks like she's watching a toilet clog. She's like, Oh, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, it's, Again, reactions here, non-existent. This moment is, in my opinion, the worst example throughout the whole course of the movie. Worst example of an actor not understanding what they're reacting to. Because, I'm sorry, I can I can even understand if she's like seeing this body reveal and she's so overwhelmed that she's like not able to scream. I've, I've been that person before. That happens. This, this woman's face is not showing any emotion at all like she had to have been directed to not react because anyone's normal instinct would be to show something 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 a little bit more and she's just standing there she couldn't look more <laughs> like just like bored honestly like she's just standing there she's a little like suspicious maybe her face looks slightly suspicious uh mouth slightly agape but never does she ever like break scream react run anything and it truthfully it it, again kind of takes me out of the moment because when you first see his face it is disgusting 
I mean, it's the sounds he's making, the sound of it just oozing out of his mouth, disgusting. And I'm like, oh, shit, holy fuck, I'm reacting significantly bigger than she is. Then it cuts to her, and she's not reacting at all. So I stop, and I pause, and I question, and I say, am I, am I reacting too big? Because there's no way this woman would be responding this way. But then it cuts to that fucking body rising up out of the water, and I'm like, oh, okay, so no, she's just, she just is not aware of what's happening around her, because... It, it feels very disjointed. It almost feels like they were filmed as two separate moments. Um, and it feels just very disconnected. And it's a bummer because it's a beautiful sequence. Like, it's really, really lovely. But uh, there's just no fear. And fear is a major aspect of what makes movies scary. And so if the person isn't showing fear, then, like, I don't know. It just it, it, it takes a lot of the oomph out of it for me. Well, it could have been that they were filmed separately. I kind of got that same impression. Like she obviously was not reacting to to the real the real effect. Like I, I don't know. Uh, that could very well be it because yeah, her reaction is so so understated. Now, yeah, uh, uh, Liza's at Emily's house, and basically the house is beautiful. It's put together. It's decorated beautifully. I mean, and I'm mentioning this for a specific reason, but it's 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 really a nice house. Um, and she tells Liza to go back where she came from and don't ever come back again, just to take her word for it. Now we cut to the hospital where Dr. John and his fellow doctor, Dr. Harris, now have the two bodies from the hotel basement are now at the morgue. So assuming Martha called the police and they got the bodies to the morgue. I guess that's my assumption, right? Very little is explained here. And what else is also not explained is the fact that one of the doctors like looks at the body and his first reaction is to put a brain scanner on this thing. And Troy, I'm sorry, but this corpse is... <laughs> heavily decayed for him to think there's any purpose to put this this headwear on this zombie corpse is just beyond me it doesn't make any sense not like anything here does but again i need some motivation in these decisions but these doctors just they don't know what the fuck they're fucking doing they don't know at all what they're doing they're bumbling yeah, I was like, what is the deal with putting a brain scanner on this thing that is literally, it's this thing is so rotted. Like, there is no way you could look at this thing and think it has any, I don't know. It's weird, but like, and then, and then John has already like performed an autopsy on Joe because he's sewing his chest up when we are, when we first emerge upon the scene, which I feel is kind of weird because it's obvious that Joe was violently killed. Like, where are the police investigating these this because so many people die these horrifically brutal ways but there's like no investigation all the bodies are just taken to the hospital and autopsies are performed and that's that like is no one worried that this plumber has his has face bashed in like things are going on at the hotel like everything's hunky dory but lest we forget a man first plummeted to the ground and I'm assuming died. I thought that Larry man would have died. Maybe he didn't die. Uh, but now this other guy definitely dead. And no, like there's absolutely no halt to any of the progress that's being made in the hotel at all. Like people are not questioning it. Nobody feels bad about it. Aside from this poor woman who we're going to be introduced to briefly. Like, like it just, yeah, it feels really like just 
lame. I don't know. Yeah, it's the whole thing. I mean, at least there is a cemetery sequence coming up here soon. But uh, Eliza couldn't give two shits. Like, it just seems like she doesn't care. I don't know. I just expect some sort of element of, you know, and I know this is fantastical. We're talking about a, a film about the gates of hell opening up. But like, I just made me chuckle when like these bodies are just showing up and, and like there's no police investigation. There's nothing. In fact, okay, so this next scene I'm going to talk about, there are two little minor scenes that are thrown in. Like the doctor leaves the hospital. He sees Eliza in the New Orleans traffic and waves to her. And then there's a, a little moment where Harris is by himself and he gets a call that he needs to go to another room. And when he leaves, the brain scanner on the the corpse does register like the the beeping goes off but he's out of the room this fucking scene roger this fucking scene with mrs joe the plumber and her little pippy long stocking looking kid this woman (laughs) roger she waltzes into this hospital her husband does nobody nobody realizes that this guy was murdered like they're just pretending he oh he must have died of heart what she's doing there is she's bringing him clothes for his funeral like that's the last thing you should be worrying about is burying this man. You should be worrying about somebody ripped his fucking eyeballs out. But she goes into this morgue. Are people, what kind of hospital is this? Are people just allowed to walk into the morgue and, and have their way with these bodies? Like there's, I, I just don't understand what's going on here. There's too many questions and I don't have any answers is the problem, Troy. This poor woman. Well, first of all, it's clearly the first time she has seen her husband's corpse because of she's having like a moment. She's reacting to it. She's responding to it. So like, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no timeline consistency at all. Like this, in order for this to happen, it would have to have been multiple days that have gone by. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe they've been holding the body and this is the first time they're admitting her like maybe, but it just seems like very abrupt. And so she's, she's coming in, she doesn't get to say a word. She walks on in her. I think her name's Marianne. She's looking at these bodies. She's weeping. She's changing the corpse. And that daughter, that Froline daughter sitting out there looking like an Amish woman with her braids. Um, and she looks really uptight, but like, we don't get any exploration with either of these women at all. Like you don't get to know really Jill. Like, I don't know anything about this daughter, Jill at all, other than the fact that her father just died. Um, and, and like, literally, like I said, the, the mom, Marianne, I don't even think she says a word. Uh, and so it does make for this whole sequence here um, to seem very rushed. I mean, it takes its time with certain moments. Like this big grand sequence coming up is really fantastic. But like, if I feel like they're like, all right, we just got to get to get to that. So let's just push through this as quickly as possible. The least exposition possible. Let's get to the next gore setup. Well, she... She's in there. She's touching him. She's feeling him. She she puts his takes his clothes off, puts his suit on, puts a suit on him to get him all ready. Does she not notice how his face looks? Like, why isn't she questioning? Like, what happened to my husband? Like, someone clearly murdered him. Why are we not looking for who did this? She doesn't seem to care. She puts a suit on him, and then as she turns to leave the the room after she and she puts a little rosary in his hand she turns to leave and she lets out a fucking scream that little red-haired daughter comes running in jill 
and finds her mother, like looks at all these bodies. I mean, this is a morgue. There's bodies everywhere. There's bodies. So Jill is obviously, I don't know how, how old is this child supposed to be, Roger? Because it looks like it's a 30 year old woman. She could be anywhere between 12 and 43. <laughs> but, but, but this girl, I, you know, I, she, she and I'm, I'm I'm positive that she's also in. I believe she's in Demons. There's one other Italian film that that she's known for. I think she's the girl in Demons in the green dress. I'm pretty positive. Oh, I'm pretty positive that's her. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I got to look it up, but I'm pretty positive. But um, she. So you know, there's elements of this that she's selling. Like she's got fear in her eyes and all that. But. From the moment that she transitions from outside of the room to the inside of the room, the events that transpire, like leading up to that and getting her inside of this um, this morgue, I I personally needed to see a lot more of, of what happened. I kind of get what they're trying to do here. Like, they're trying to make it so that whatever it is that people are seeing that causes them to collapse, pass out, whatever it may be, we as the viewer are not going to see it yet. So there's this element of mystery. And I, I appreciate that, but I still think like they over edited these sequences. Like when she, when that woman turns around and screams, I need to have at least some kind of moment getting her down to the floor. Like I gotta, I gotta see what happened because when the girl walks in, the woman is just laying there still and, like completely like unconscious and it just feels jarring it it really it feels just weird like it doesn't totally click it doesn't register properly and then i got a bone to pick with who uh, this hospital is completely (laughs) completely against code because whoever left that jar that glass jar on the top of that cabinet a glass jar just apparently filled with acid. <laughs> like, I mean, first of all, is should that even be in a hospital setting? I don't even know what it's doing there. <laughs> Why isn't there a lid on? There's, I mean, well, it's it's like it's precariously atop this cabinet, this jar of acid, and like, I mean, this this hospital needs to be sued because somebody could clearly, so obviously, bump into that and knock this thing over, which is exactly what happens. But then let's talk about how much acid is actually inside this jar, because I'm sorry, but this room is filling up with acid. (laughs) This room starts to fill and there's no way there would be that much acid in that jar. Well, Roger, you're for, I mean, you're leaving out the best part. The acid tips over and begins to pour out directly on this poor Joe, the plumber's wife's face. I mean, and it goes on. It's like a running faucet of acid pouring on this woman's face as her poor child stares on mouth agape. And we, 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 the audience are seeing like the skin turn red and the, the acid starting to bubble. And then like this bubbly liquid full of blood mixed with acid starts to form on the floor and the puddle starts to go towards poor uh, Jill. And she's running around the room and, and, and trying to escape from the puddle. And she opens a door and this another, this, this dead body is just in this closet that just like falls out. And we get this freeze frame of Jill screaming again. Who the who is running this hospital? Bodies in closets, acid on the top of fucking shelves. I don't absurd. Ugh, Troy, it's frustrating to me because for all of these complaints that I have with the pacing, the pacing of this movie is a bit of a mess. It's a clusterfuck, and just the overall the editing of of these you know these big sequences they just jump all over the place. But then you look at the actual visual. You know, you look at what's happening. This whole sequence of her in this morgue this beautiful glowing 
<laughs> futuristic morgue setting, it, it's quite lovely, and it's really unsettling. Like, the whole sequence of, of her running around the bodies and, and, you know, trying to avoid this frothy red foam, it's absurd, but it's really a very exciting moment overall in the course of the film. And then she opens this door. The body's like looming. I can't tell if it's supposed to be a zombie body or if it's supposed to be like just a corpse that's been like, you know, she opened the door and it's just falling towards her. Like, I, I think it might be a zombie is kind of like what the vibe I'm getting, but you don't get any closure because she just opens her mouth and screams and you're right. It freeze frames. And then it does this thing where it completely cuts away from the moment and decides to simplify her character and cut her character down to as bare bones as possible. And it really um, is she's out of all the characters in the film, I would say she's the one that I think is handled the worst. Um, and it, it's very frustrating because there's something really cool that's happening here. That's going to be, you know, shown in a moment. There's a really cool development with her character. And I just feel like it's completely wasted because of this whole cutaway that they choose to do. Yeah, this character is definitely handled ineffectively uh and some of the choices they make the character make like towards the end of the film even are like what the fuck you know um but yeah i mean this whole sequence it's it's visually i mean watching the acid pour on this woman's face is great but there's just a lot of a lot of things that are just like they, they don't make much sense and it's hard to kind of get past that if if you know if you're wanting some sort of i don't know realism in a film but uh, we do cut to John and Liza, and this is probably the only time in the film that it really attempts to give us some character development and interaction between these two, uh, because it does start to seem like they are forming kind of a, a, a liking towards each other, but it's, we don't get any of We don't get much with them. So it's, it's really hard to figure out like why he all of a sudden is so like, attracted to like wanting to be at her house all the time and, and make sure she's okay because there's really nothing that lends itself to that sort of relationship between these two growing besides this short short scene which is they're in a bar chatting about the fact that she used to live in new york city and then she got this inheritance and he does ask her he's like well with these accidents would you consider like giving up the hotel and moving back. And she says, she can't, this is my last chance. It's my last chance to make it. And then she does mention to him, Roger, you did mention this earlier about Martha and Arthur. They're a hindrance. They're, they're way more uh, trouble than what they are, what they're worth. And he says, why don't you just fire them? And she's like, well, they came with the house. I can't fire them. The fuck you can tell them to get the fuck out. Who's paying them. That's what I want to know. I do like this whole sequence that they had. She has with the doctor because it is set in this cool kind of um, this little bar setting, you know, that uh, feels very New Orleans, and and you get to see something that's you know not this big mansion or this hospital sequence. Uh, I mean, the locations are gorgeous; they they really are. But it's nice just to be in a different environment, and it is funny to me because I know this is such a standard thing for Italian horror movies to to film. And, and replace the audio with a full dub track because they'll hire Italian actors and they'll also hire, obviously, American actors. Um, but there are a few scenes where it feels like maybe they are using some of the original audio and it is very helpful to Liza's performance. The scene is specifically, she's a bit stronger here. Um, it, but it shocks me because this was filmed in New Orleans. Like, this is filmed on location. And I'm surprised that they just 
you know, Italian director, I get it. Use some Italian actors for sure. But overall, like, if this is being filmed in the States, like, I just feel like they could have avoided so many issues by not having to dub this whole thing over. So it baffles me. I thought they would have, like, at least filmed it overseas. That would make more sense to me. But whatever. I mean, I, I like seeing this location. I like this little moment between the two of them. Overall, though, the Doctor's character, once he starts to become more prominent and, and really becomes more of a fixture in the film and interacting with Liza more, I've really come to dislike him. I think he's um, quite a misogynist. I think that his dialogue overall is often uh, talking down to her. Um, and he just, he, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think he's necessarily that strong of a character. Well, he, he doubts everything that she tells him. I mean, she, he, he, he basically is telling her that she is delusional at one point. Like he, he's not when things are happening to her and she's trying to confide in him because he's really the only person she has to confide. And he just like treats her very like dismissively. It's like, Oh, you're crazy. Like you're just seeing things, you know, you're just letting the stress get to you. So yeah, I definitely see that. I, I do like this moment that he gets where he gets a phone call. Um, the waitress comes and gets him and says, doctor, you have a phone call to the hospital. And, and, and Liza's sitting at the table and the doctor's behind her and he's talking, he's like, what, what? And then she gets this look on her face. Like she knows something like terrible must've just happened. It's really a, a really cool little like effective thing. Like I think she's starting to realize shit, things are really odd here. And I do like, the, I mean, I love the fact that it's filmed in New Orleans, Roger. Cause I, like I said, I love New Orleans, but like this could have been filmed anywhere. New Orleans has nothing really to do with the the plot of the film. I mean, so it is, it is baffling that they made the effort to come overseas to film this in, in, in America when it could have really filmed, you could have filmed this anywhere in Italy and it would have had just the same effect. I mean, because really the house itself, like this hotel doesn't necessarily scream New Orleans to me. The only reason I, I I know it's New Orleans is because, like I said, the bridge I recognize. There are shots that take place in the French Quarter, and you get to see that. But the house itself does not scream New Orleans. We cut to the funeral for for Joe and his wife. I mean, who, why is anybody questioning how this woman died with acid all over her face? We never hear anybody talk about that. They find her in a morgue with her face burned off, and I guess go on about your day, have a funeral for her, whatever. We don't need to know how it happened. I am not normally someone to say, add some police procedural, but God, this movie could have benefited from like at least a police presence or something, you know, some, somebody doing their job and checking in on things because yeah, they're just having a funeral. Like it's no big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. People are crying, but you know, they're not acting like both of these people were violently murdered in two completely separate locations, by the way. Um, I highly doubt that woman laid down. <laughs> Just lay down and allow that acid to be poured on her. So um, it, it is a it's, it's weird. And then you got this whole little moment, Jill, again looking like Heidi, sad, um, and and she's being comforted by Liza. And like I understand that Joe died on Liza's property, but I don't believe that Liza had any relationship with him aside from that. Like I I'm pretty sure that was the first time she met Joe. Um, so for her to be like prominently like comforting Jill and, you know, and, and having this whole moment where Jill comes up and cries to her, it just felt really unnatural. And then you've got this whole bit where, you know, obviously Jill turns and looks at the camera and her eyes are all yellow and 
veiny, like everybody else's eyes with those contacts, those glass contacts, which are, they did have to wear glass contacts, by the way. How miserable is that? But like, it, it's a great concept. It's a really cool concept to throw in the idea that she's possessed by something, but I have no idea what fucking happened. And it's really not explained any further. I mean, she comes back a little bit, but like, you got this great idea here, like do something with it, you know? This is another character, Roger, that doesn't say a word. Like there's, there's, there's no dialogue. This, this poor character, Jill has no dialogue in the film at all. I mean, you mentioned another character earlier in the film that had no dialogue. This, this character has no dialogue. So we don't get to know, like, we don't know who she was as a character before she got possessed. And then like at the end of the film, when she does come back, because she disappears the rest of the film, except for the final few minutes, when she comes back, they, they do a choice with her that just is out of the blue and just makes zero sense. I don't know. Again, script story is not this film strong point guys that's that's we just have I, I just it's just not i mean i, mean, I think we're gonna a lot of our comments are going to be about that but again it's it's just every scene exists to get us to the next death scene that evening liz goes downstairs to find emily is in her house um just just sitting there like how did this, this she's there she's in her house emily asks why didn't you listen to me? Well, since you didn't listen to me, I guess I'm going to have to tell you the story that 60 years ago, everyone in this hotel disappeared. And one of the guests, Schweiki, he found one of the seven gateways of hell was on this property. And then suddenly she like starts freaking out. She senses a presence. And Liza's like, there's nobody here. There's nothing here, Emily. She's like, yes, there is. And then the bell from room 36 goes off. She reveals to Liza that 36 was the room that he was killed in. And you must never go in that room. I like this whole moment here. It's 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 quite um unsettling. Like the like, you know, you have this great reveal of her just in the shadows and with those fucking glassy eyes. Um we haven't talked about this broad's voice yet. Obviously, I have an issue with it, but specifically this woman's voice is so flat and just um, disembodied in a way. Like whoever did the voiceover for this, it's just this one specifically. It just stands out to me. Um, but I also feel like this is an example of one of those scenes because they put this great reverb on it. This is an example of one of those scenes where, in a way, as things start to become fantastic, fantastical, and a little bit more unbelievable, it does. Like you said earlier, this does start to kind of elevate the moment for me because it feels very otherworldly, very supernatural. She puts her hands on the painting; it makes her hands start bleeding. I really like that moment, um, and I do think I appreciate about her character. Like she's clearly blatantly trying to warn Liza, who refuses to listen to her. Anything Emily says, don't do it. Liza does it, so fuck Liza. Um, but overall, like. I, I feel like what I'm gathering is that Emily was involved with the original ritual, which was 60 years ago, which would not explain why she's so young and beautiful. So definitely supernatural presence there. She was involved with it. Um, this is whatever it has happened. That's what's kept her, I'm assuming, alive in this realm all this time. And she's almost been like a, a connector, a clairvoyant specifically for 
that artist, you know, and, and, and so she's in con- communication with him or in contact or can at least sense him. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really re- grasping for straws here and I'm reaching, trying to kind of piece this together, but it does seem like her presence overall is positive. Like, I don't think that she wants anything bad to happen. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, what is going on with her? Like, what do you, what would you say? Like, how would you describe her purpose in the film at this point? I well, I would say my her purpose in the film exists for me to to warn Eliza. No, I'm saying like actually like what got her like <laughs> what got her to be as a character like what has happened what has transpired up to this point that got Emily to be who she is and where she is at, at, at that time. I don't know. I think she made a deal with the um with the with the dark forces. I I, I dare say maybe a deal with the devil because. Later, I, I can I can elaborate on that later on when we get to her her scene with that with her dog and everything that that's going to come up here real quick because she does when when the when the entities come to confront her she's like you I won't go back there you can't take me back I've done I've done everything you've asked of me you, you leave me alone so I think she made some sort of deal with them I personally the more I watch it I don't think I think she only exists nobody else could see her I think. Liza is the only person that can see her. She's obviously a supernatural ent- entity. She's not really r- exists in the real world, as we find out when John later goes to her house. Um, I think it's an entity that only Liza is supposed to be able to see. She's there specifically to warn Liza, but then that doesn't make sense why we have to witness her death scene. I mean, it, there's something funky because you're right. Okay, so let's let's walk through this. She she's 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 freaking out. She thinks there's a presence. We hear she's hearing people call her name. She goes and touches that painting. She's like, "What is this?" and she puts her hands on it and she pulls her hands away and they're full of blood. So she freaks out and runs out of the house with Dicky her dog. We forgot to mention the dog's name is Dicky. She runs out of the house. So Liza runs after her and she calls for her. And then she, we have this moment and I think it only exists to, to, to let us know that Emily is supernatural because basically Liza realizes that when Dicky and Emily ran out of the house, that they made no footsteps. There was no sound when she runs across the floor to, to run after them. She it's loud footsteps because it's an old house. The footsteps are going to creak. She, she realizes that no noise was made when they ran out of the house, signaling to me that they are supernatural. But, and I hate to ask this question, but uh, how, how does that blind woman run so fast from this house? I mean, she is very much blind, but she takes off and, books it out of there full sprint and i was i would be like if i was liza i'd be like ma'am no wait like <laughs> i would take off after her i mean i i don't i don't think i see i think we could sit here and talk for about this character for hours and and just talk in circles because we're not given enough yeah I, I'm, I'm assuming that's my whole interpretation of this this character is somebody only eliza can see she's there specifically to to warn liza and then in, in turn the the dark entities, especially Schweiki, doesn't don't do not like that she is trying to warn Liza to get her out of the house because they want her there. So that's why they ultimately end up coming to her and, and killing her here in a few minutes. But yeah, I mean this this poor Emily has has told Liza do not go in room thirty six. What does what does uh, Liza do the next morning? Gets a fucking hatchet, breaks into the room thirty six <laughs> without hesitation. 
without hesitation, like, did that mysterious blonde clairvoyant not just warn you to not go in that room? I mean, I, I, she, Liza doesn't even take a moment to heed the warning. And there's already enough creepy, weird shit happening that I would at least consider listening. People have died in this place. But the first thing she sees is that dusty book, the Aban, um, and like the closet creaks open ominously and she goes in and all it is is a bunch of old clothes. And, you know, she's she's taken in the moment. This room is in disarray, which lets, leads me to believe like nobody has been in this hotel for years. So what what have Arthur and Martha been doing here is what I want to know. And then she she slowly approaches the bathroom. And when she opens the bathroom door, Schweiky's corpse is there nailed to the wall. I have questions because wasn't this corpse just in the morgue? Uh, uh, yes. Yes, I know. It is very confusing. <laughs> That's my first question. Second question is he was not nailed to the wall in his room. He was nailed to the wall in the basement, right? So this is not consistent. It's a, yeah, it's it's not consistent. Uh, there's a lot of things here that aren't consistent, but there are also a few things like one thing I am and again I'm reaching, but very much at the end of the film uh, there is a, a whole aspect of them going through a doorway and ending up somebody somewhere else. Um, so this is something that I'm I'm starting to feel like there is just a complete separation from reality here, because it, it, again, you said it. We've been asking so many questions, but they don't have answers. I think the whole point is to embrace the weird and to to embrace the confusing. But one of the main complaints about this film is it's completely confusing. It makes no sense. Yes, when you stop to think about it, how these corpses are jumping from one scene to the next, I get there's a supernatural element, but still, it doesn't really, it doesn't make sense because then we find out in, a, in, a, in another scene here that the corpse is back at the house. I mean, no consistency, but she runs out of the house. She runs into John. Again, this is kind of the first of many moments that John just shows up at her this hotel. And so she takes him upstairs to show him what she saw. And of course, the corpse is not there. The nails are still there. Um, but he is very just dismissive of her. He's like, there's nothing here. Yeah, there's some nails on the wall, but this is rust. It's not blood. She's like, I, I swear he was here. She, he's like, no, I think you're just under a lot of stress. And she's like, no, no, no. Well, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just chalking it up to that story that Emily told me. And he says, who's Emily? She's like, oh, you know, the blind girl that lives near the tracks. And this is when he tells her, um, there's no blind girl living in this town. What are you talking about? And then she notices that book is gone. Where's the book? That book is gone. Oh, it's one of the most lackluster deliveries in the film. The book. <laughs> but yeah, the book's gone. She's flipping out. And, and Emily sure knows that shit's about to go down. Like, I mean, Emily, everything she's saying, I think is starting to come to fruition. Because now that Liza's opened this fucking door, and I do think what she saw, I think her seeing the corpse in there more than anything was a vision. You know, it's implying of what's to come because she's basically unleashing the evil that's in that room. So now, I mean, I really think like this is kind of what's kicking everything into high gear now. After this terrifying encounter, she decides to go to town with Martin Rimmer, Martin, the contractor, they're clearly in the French Quarter. You get to see some of the cool scenery of the French Quarter. Um, and he's just telling her all these plans he has for the basement. He wants to make a game room, a laundry room. She's like, well, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't cost money. And he asks her, 
well, do you have the plans, the floor plans for the house so I can look at the plans for the basement? And as she's walking by this old bookstore, she notices sitting on, on display is the Yaban. So she runs inside, grabs the book, but when she gets in there, it's not the, the Yaban. And that fucking maniacal bookkeeper is just laughing. He's like, oh, that book has been there for two years, but nobody wants to read it. It's quite charming, though. I don't know why nobody wants to read it. <laughs> fucking goofball. He's the scariest person in the movie, this fucking weirdo, with his bad teeth. Everyone in this film has horrible teeth, by the way. Um, but yes, and you never see him again, thank God. Uh, I couldn't stand listening to him giggling. Um, but this is this weird thing where she sees the book. Um, I mean, again, it's something that they, they don't really utilize this that much. Like She has this one moment where she thinks he, she, that she sees it, and then they don't really revisit this idea of her having this kind of vision of the book again. Yeah, I, I, I could, you know what? I could have done without this scene. They could have cut this scene out and it would not have done anything to the story. Not that there is a story, but I mean, this is a scene that could have been removed from the film, if, you know, to be honest with you. Um, well, we, and we cut back to Arthur, who we forgot about Arthur. His sweaty ass is down in the basement doing some spackling and he's just dispatched. You don't even see it. You don't even know. I didn't even know it was him. I could <laughs> like, barely tell it was him. I, I, I know. I'm glad you said that because I had to watch it like three times before I realized, oh shit, he got killed. Okay, well, that was quick. It's probably the, the most lackluster death scene in the entire film. It's it's one that, you know, for all of the uh, elaborate setup that is surrounding all the other death scenes in the film, this one is, they must have, I'm assuming they just must have inserted this or thought, oh shit, we have this Arthur character. Remember him? Well, we might as well kill him real quick. Um, because this next scene, Roger, this is like the cream of the crop when it comes to death scenes in this movie, because Martin leaves Liza to go to the town hall to look for the plans for the hotel and the city clerk shows up and tells him where the book is. And Martin's like, well, let's get the book down. The city clerk is like, well, you must not have heard. We just had negotiations with the union and we get an earlier lunch break. So I will let you get the book yourself and I'm going to go to the to go on my lunch and I'll lock up so nobody bothers you. I'm a, I think that this the guy playing this clerk is actually Fulci, Roger. Oh, a little cameo. Because if you look on the IMDb at the cast... He's part of the cast and he's credited as the city clerk. And this is the city clerk, correct? Yes, you are right. You're absolutely right in saying that. Well, I, I'm happy to know that he gave himself a little moment here. I'm happy he shared it with Martin. And he's not bad. He's not bad. Uh, so he leaves leaves Martin in there. Martin climbs up the ladder. Of course, the book that he needs is on the very top shelf. So he's at the very top of the ladder. He gets it. He's open it. He's thumbing through it until he comes to the seven doors motel layout and he flips the page and he notices we see the layout for the basement and there's this huge room in the center of it. He's like, what the hell? And all of a sudden lightning strikes causing him to fall off the ladder and he hits the he hits the ground that, that, that fucking cement floor hard. This makes me, this makes me cringe. Like when his head hits that cement, it, this looks real. Like, I mean, it's, Whew. I was like, fuck, that would hurt. But it, it paralyzes him. It breaks his neck. He hits it so hard. Martin's been out of control up to this point. Like, he is hell-bent on giving this place a makeover. That's the only 
story arc this character has is wanting to give this hotel a makeover with money that she doesn't have. So he finally has this moment where he finds his goddamn blueprint and they, they fucking give this poor man by far like the cruelest death sequence in this movie. Like, I mean, this poor guy, he's barely doing anything. And then he gets fucking knocked off that ladder, breaks his back. He's still alive though. And what happens next, Troy? I mean, Come on now. This is definitely one of those moments that this film is is very much remembered for. Okay. I want to know why this scene is not talked about more. This is pretty ballsy. Um I, I don't see it. I don't I can't think of another director that would that would do this, that would try this, um, to the extent that Fulci goes here. But yeah, once he's on the floor paralyzed, we see all of these fucking giant tarantulas just start crawling out from under the bookshelves, marching towards him. I mean, this is slow. Like this is not a fast scene. Like these things are crawling out. There's, there's dozens of them. I mean, we're watching them crawl up his body. They're going up his legs. If you are, have arachnophobia, this is not the scene for you. And like I said, I cannot believe this scene is not talked about more because what these spiders do, Roger, is they, begin to basically eat his face off and it's it's showing it like this is it's showing it it's not we are seeing these tarantulas as fake as they look dig their fucking fangs into this dude's lip and rip it off rip the side of his nose off at poor there's this seat there's this shot of like Martin, he can't move because he broke his neck, but we see from his perspective of his eyeball. I really like this shot. Like the spider crawls over his eyeball and he's looking up at it. And he's like, Ugh! and all of a sudden the spider digs its fucking fangs into his eyeball and starts ripping his fucking eyeball out. Not only that, just when we're, we were, one of them goes in his fucking mouth and begins ripping his tongue out. I do not know where these spiders came from, but I am happy that they came to visit because this sequence, for as absurd as it is, it is it is pretty stunning. And this is an example of one of those moments where, like, yes, you can you absolutely identify which spiders are real and which are not? 110%. The fake spiders... I mean, you look like you got them from like a Marshalls or a Michaels during during like <laughs> like the Halloween season. Like they are very cheap looking. And when they are like an extreme close up on his face, like you see all the details of that of, or maybe lack of details. But, you know, the the amount of detail that goes into the gore into the fake head slowly being torn apart, the lip being ripped open, you know, his nose being ripped open. Can you tell it's latex? A hundred percent. But it's just so much. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I, I again, I, I really am impressed by what they did and what they tried to do. You could tell that there are people who are just holding these fake tarantulas, jabbing them, just jabbing them at this fake, this fake head, stabbing into them. And and there's real spiders on top of it, so you're getting close up shots of them as well. Uh, and yeah, man, I just I love the scene, and and I, I'm really, really, really happy that this one goes as long as it does because like it it's excruciatingly long, but it, from the eyeball to the nose to the to the tongue, you know, ripping open the lip, like you see his whole face just get mauled in extreme close up. It's so weird and so surreal, and I love the scene. Yeah, 
I was going to say, close up the camera never flinches. The camera's there the entire time. We're watching these spiders rip flesh out. out. It's 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 something, and it doesn't make if it doesn't make you cringe, I don't know what will. Um, because this is this is definitely a a scene that I think once you see, you can't forget. Minus, like you said, minus the little flaws that that are apparent now, particularly with how fake the. The spiders look and some of the shots of the head. It's very obviously it's just a latex paper mache type head. But come on, I've never seen anything like this since. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say this is one of the best scenes that we've reviewed to date. I, I love I love this moment. Yeah, Mass, it's great. It's it's wonderful. If you've never seen this film, I mean, you need to watch the film just for this particular scene, particularly if you don't like spiders, because I guarantee you this scene will have you just freaking out. Uh, but yeah, that's the end of poor Arthur. He's a bloody mess by the end of it. Face all tore off. And then we cut to John who goes to the house that Liza told, told him that Emily lives in. And now as he's approaching Roger, it's all squalid and boarded up, which it was not when Liza went there with Emily, which again lends me to the idea that Eliza is the only person that can see Emily because now the house is dilapidated. He actually has to break in with garden shears. And when he gets in, the house is fucking filthy. I mean, it's cobweb furniture is overturned. This is not the house that Liza was in earlier in the film. It is the house, but not in this state, but he does find that fucking book. This book is everywhere. And he begins reading from it and he finds out about the fact that the hotel was built on one of the seven gateways to hell. Back at the hotel, Martha, we forgot about this broad. Martha has her little mop bucket and her mop. I don't know the fuck she thinks she's going to do with this. Uh, But she goes into room 36 with her bucket and mop and, you know, starts to kind of, I guess, try to clean up. When she goes into the bathroom, the bathtub is filled with black water and she wastes no time, Roger. I would not be doing this without gloves on, but she wastes no time rolling up her sleeve, sticking her fucking arm in that nasty ass water and pulling out that fucking clump of hair that's clogging it. I don't know where the fuck she's been. I'm happy she's back, but it's much too brief because again, I was really anticipating that she was going to be connected to all of this shit that's happening. And no, like absolutely not. All that happens is she drains this fucking tub. She pulls a chunk of hair out of it. And I do really like this moment here where the water starts to lower and you see the form of what is Joe's corpse appear in the tub. And I know it's disorienting. I know it makes absolutely no sense. But I am at this point, I'm really starting to get the sense that these things are able to, I mean, move and come and go. I mean, again, we're stretching reality here. I'm, I'm thinking that they're able to kind of like shift between different realities or between locations at this point because they're possessed by this this demonic force i know i'm reaching but i'm, I'm thinking that's got to be the case because it is a really cool sequence yeah there's i guess they can just go from like transport from one place to another because they are they are technically like demons from from hell right the gate of hell has been opened so these are demons yeah it is a cool sequence because he rises up from the uh from the bath and of course, this is about the most reaction this girl, this woman has because she does start to like whimper and back up and he comes up and grabs her face and we get the very infamous sort of uh, Fulci slow uh, push towards someone's eyeball getting poked out because he did this, his very famous scene in um, 
and zombie with that woman being pulled towards that splintered wood. This is sort of the same thing, a little faster in reverse, because what ends up happening is this Joe pushes poor Martha's head, slams her head against one of the nails that was protruding from the wall. And we see it in all its glory as it busts through her skull and busts her eyeball out. It's wild. It's gross. Uh, There's so many eyeball effects in this film. A lot of them are uh, leaving something a little bit to be desired, I will say, because you can always tell when the like when the eyeball starts to come out, like the lid around the eye always sticks to it because it's always made out of latex. So the eyelashes always pull with the eye. It's so weird, um, but it's still it's so fucking fun, man. Like, I love it. Yeah, I, that's a great scene. I mean, we see like the camera's right there when that when that nail protrudes and pops her eyeball out. It's like, woof. kind of a, a pointless little scene with back at the morgue now john has gone back to the morgue where he's examining schweike's body again the body's right back at the morgue when it was just at the house you know a few minutes ago um and he finds that the the body has the same symbol on it on its arm that is in the book as being like a mark of the the devil or god knows what it's not really explained and now we get roger the scene that i just i don't get i don't get it's emily she's at home and she's sitting there, you know, by herself at home when all of a sudden her piano starts to play. And so she senses a presence and all of a sudden all of the zombies appear. Like all of the people that have been killed so far in the film are in her house. And of course she can't see them, but she can sense them and she's screaming for them to leave her alone. She tries to run away and she trips. And when she falls, she feels one of their feet. And this is when she's like screaming that she doesn't want to go back. I don't want to go back. You can't take me back. I did what I've been asked. So I'm wondering, like, was she in hell before? And and they they let her go into like uh, what do you call it? Purgatory? Is she in purgatory now? They they kicked they they let her go out of hell to go to purgatory so that she could have some sort of contact with the people that whoever comes into this hotel now and, and they're displeased that she's, tr- that she, she's trying to warn Emily. I don't get this because if she's a supernatural element, how are they killing her? I don't, this, none of this makes sense to me, Roger, none of it. I think like you just use a great term that I'm, I'm going to use moving forward purgatory. I think, I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head, at least as close as possible, because I do think she's in like this alternate realm. Absolutely. Obviously, everything that's in hell is starting to bleed through what's hap- with what's happening here involving the book. So I think that she was, you know, for whatever reason, she's in purgatory, but she's been using that ability to warn Emily instead of help this progress. She's absolutely been war- actually been warning Emily. And so for that, I think she's punished because she's trying to prevent the, the gates of hell to open from, from opening, if you will. So that's kind of what I'm assuming is happening here. Like if I'm really piecing it together, but I think purgatory is a great word to use. And again, as a standalone scene, man, I mean, this scene is pretty stellar. I mean, she's screaming her head off. Yes. Uh, but uh, like when you see everything that happens with the, the zombies starting to appear and they all start slowly closing in around her, it's very creepy. When you think of the fact that she can't see anything and she's just sitting there screaming, it's it's really, really uncomfortable. And then, of course, the whole bit with the dog coming up is one of the most memorable moments from the film. Yeah, the, yeah, the zombie and the way they're just like standing there, like they don't really do anything. Like it's not like they're chasing her. They're just kind of half of some of them just look like they're they can't even they're not even like moving. There's no movement. There's no nothing. They're just like there with their heads tilted, just staring at her. It's really unsettling. Like Arthur's there now and he's just glazed over. 
but she she ends up ultimately having Dicky, her her dog, attack them. And boy, does he attack them! I mean, he gets some. He he jumps on that one, rips its throat out, takes you know, and and to the point where they all like disappear. And she's cowered in the corner, and Dicky comes over to her, and he's covered in blood, and she's like, "Good boy, Dicky. Good boy. You 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 got him away from me." And all of a sudden, Roger, fucking Dicky, turns on her. And fucking rips her throat out in full glory. We see this dog's mouth rip a huge fucking chunk out of poor Emily's throat. And she's screaming. Not only that, then he turns and fucking rips her ear off. Bites the side of her head and pulls her fucking ear off. I was like, what the fuck? This is pretty horrible having this poor blind woman be murdered, ripped apart by her by her own dog that has been her protector the entire film. How fucked up is that? If you look at the the dog, well, first of all, before I even say that, if she's been in purgatory, and I don't think she was blind when she was first seen in the movie, I'm just curious how she even got a seeing eye dog to begin with. Like, where did they procure this dog? So, okay, but Dickie's here. He's here to stay, and he's here to play. And when he comes back to her after he mauls these ghouls, these zombies, you notice that he has, like, blood on the side of his head. What I'm thinking is, like, one of the zombies bit him. Or something like that, and thus he's now infected. It's real quick, but there is blood on the dog. Um, and this whole bit of her throat getting ripped out, I mean, that is a big old hole in her throat. It is quite effective, and it's just gushing. I mean, splurting blood. You get some beautiful blood splurts here. So um, I really do enjoy this moment. But yeah, this whole bit with this dog is kind of cruel. This poor woman. It is very cruel. I mean, poor Emily. She, I, I just, you know, it's not, it's one, she's blind. No, we don't want to see, you know, something terrible happen to some poor blind woman. But then the two, it's her dog that she has been her faithful companion the entire film, protected her, guided her, and it just turns on her and rips her apart. My thing was, I, I get what you're saying, but I also think that if maybe she was given the seeing eye dog by these ghouls and so they can, they can cause him to, to act however they want. It's, I don't know. It just does. This whole scene does not make any sense because if she's supernatural, how is she dying? Like, I don't get it. I don't get it, but let's move on because again, we could, we could harp on this for hours. Um, so basically back at the hotel, Liza, she's down in the basement. I, she, fuck this Liza. She's down in the basement. She's looking for Martha and Arthur. So John at the same time is trying to call her on the phone. There's no answer. It's real quiet. She's walking down. She walks across the platform. She doesn't see anything. She turns around to go back upstairs. And this jump scare got me. This film doesn't have a lot of jump scares, but this is one of them. When Arthur jumps up from the fucking water and grabs her. Yeah, this jump scare is completely unexpected because just seconds ago, he was there in the room looming over Emily. So I would definitely didn't anticipate that he would be there so quickly. But here we are. Oh, and he's he pulls her down and luckily she fucking kicks him in the face to get him up, get him off of her. And she runs back upstairs as she runs back upstairs. That fucking bell for room 30, 36 starts ringing again, which is driving her fucking crazy. She's screaming. She runs into John. How did he get to her house so fast? He was just trying to call her. And now he's at her house, like within 30 seconds. Time does not exist in this film, Troy. I think we've already come to accept that fact because it does not make sense but somehow some way this is where we are but yeah when she runs into him she's obviously hysterical but he still is like blow like he still blows her off he's like oh what are you so scared like, oh you're you're seeing stuff there ain't nothing there but i did see what you left for me in that house i went to that house that you said that emily lives in and it's abandoned but you left that book there for me to see 
And this woman is terrified and he's like just treating her like dog shit. Well, and the fact that he still doubts her, like it just it's a character choice. It just doesn't make sense to me because he's starting to talk about like opening up the gates of hell and, you know, he read the book and this and that. And then she comes into play and he treats her like such like a like a frail woman, you know, and, and she just went through a genuine experience. Like she's not hallucinating. And yeah, he really is just talking down to her. Uh, these are the moments with him that I like the least, honestly, over the course of like the final stretch of the movie. I think he becomes significantly more unlikable between his, you know, decisions of how he talks to her and his decision to waste every bullet he has, uh, <laughs> as we will come to find later. I think he's just rather ineffective. Well, there's an endless amount of bullets later, Roger. But then he asks her something, too, that kind of puzzles me, because basically he's like, oh, well, if you saw Arthur, why don't you take me to where you saw him? So she takes him back down to the basement and nobody's there, of course, because anytime he tries to she tries to prove anything to him, nobody's there. So he asks her, who are you really? She's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, who are you really? Because according to the book, this hotel is one of the seven gateways of hell. So is he like insinuating that she's like demon or i don't i don't get why he's asking her who she really is and it's such a like accusatory way but there's like no moment for her to react or like press him what he means because all of a sudden lightning and thunder starts to erupt and the basement starts to shake violently and they're able to run upstairs while the whole house is shaking they run out of the house past the painting which is now bleeding like the walls of the amityville house just blood is gushing is oozing from it and they get in the car and they drive away. And I, Roger, I do like this shot as they pull away from the house. We linger on the house and we see all of the windows light up and we see like the ghouls, the shadows of the, the ghouls, like walking past the windows. It's real. It's it's real creepy. It's kind of basic, but it's super creepy. Well, at this point, we're getting into like the final stretch of the movie. And I do really think it picks up the pacing. At least it, it, it's on a mission now. You know, they are wanting to give a big grand finale. And I really think that, you know, getting to the hospital and everything, we do get quite a lot of action. Um, I, I really like where it's going here. Um, it, it gets really intense for me. But it's repetitive action, Roger. It's not like I, I, I really I kind of I think that for me, the ending is kind of meh. Uh, to me, it's the, like the least interesting part of the movie for, for some of the sequences that we we've gotten. I feel like this ending is a little like lackluster, but I, I mean, it is, it does go fast. I mean, ultimately what happens is they, they get out of the, they drive away from the house and they go to the hospital because he wants to talk to Harris because he feels like Harris is somebody rational that he can talk to about what's going on. He gets to the hospital, they go into his office. He, um, you know, he tries to get he gets a gun from his drawer. Why a doctor has a loaded gun in his desk drawer, I don't know, but he has one. He gets on the phone to try to call, but the phone is dead. And all of a sudden, Roger, Liza looks at her hands and they're bleeding, like for some reason, which is the kind of the same thing that happened to um Emily earlier in the film with the painting, but now Liza's hands are bleeding. And when she backs away from the the desk, you know, walk, looking at her hands, she backs against his his door, and all of a sudden, the glass breaks, and now this film turns into a zombie film, Roger, because there are like zombies galore. They grab her and are pulling her out of the doorway, very much like Dawn of the Dead, when John has his gun and he starts shooting them, shoots them everywhere until like he realizes, oh, you shoot him in the head. Although 
he knows like he figures out that you have to shoot him in the head because he shoots a couple of them in the head to get them off of her. But then as they're running away, he continues to like shoot him in the arm, shoot him in the stomach. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh my God. He's making the worst choices possible. Like I love a zombie movie. You know that. And I really love the Italian approach to zombies. It is very Romero inspired, but I think like the aesthetic of these zombies staggering through these hallways is quite terrifying. Can they really do much? Not really. Um, But I mean, the visual I think is really, really awesome. Um, But yeah, he's just so fucking awful. Like he, he, he successfully kills a few of them, but then continues to like shoot them in the torso and everything. And it just is like, man, like, what the fuck? But like, then you're right. Like the amount of bullets, it's just endless. So I guess it doesn't matter because this gun, it just, it, it, the amount of bullets, it just doesn't end. So he's running around this building, shooting all these zombies. I do hear what you say that like, you know, for this final stretch, I'm getting what I want as it being a zombie movie. I love that. But it also becomes, um, it feels like they're almost like, okay, now we need to get to the finish line. So like, let's just get as gory as we can for a couple moments and then bam. Here's the finale. Like when the ending hits, it feels really abrupt. It feels really, really like unexpected. And so I I guess you think for everything that's been building up to, I guess you expect just a little bit more of a, of a final realization or a finalized conclusion. You don't really get that. You do get Jill though. So you do have a moment where you have Jill being discovered in the hospital, in the clinic or um, in the, um, the morgue area for some reason. I don't know why she's there, but okay, like I can run with this. Yeah, she's on the floor crying. Well, yeah, because when basically John and Liza get separated, when they run out of the hallway, they are bombarded with zombies. He runs one way, she gets into the elevator, they're separated. Um, so when she gets to the morgue, she does find uh, Jill on the floor crying for some reason. So John, the room that he is in, he does find Harris. He's like, Harris, what the fuck's going on? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Zombies come in. And again, he has to shoot them with these never ending this gun. It's just like, it's like a six shooter pistol, but it literally has endless amounts of bullets. Uh, Harris runs into another room. Zombies are coming in. He's shooting them. And all of a sudden the glass door like blows out and Harris goes up against the wall. And we get this probably the most obvious fake effect in the film is, is Harris's face being embedded with glass shards it's very obviously it's a dummy very very obvious and it's it's just it's awkward that he's even there because honestly like they introduce him he's there for a second you think he's going to bring some kind of i don't know something to the to the story something to the plot but he's literally just there to die and it's this really quick shot of like a few shards of glass like rocketing into his face and uh and that's all you get it it feels like almost like an effect that maybe didn't quite go to plan yeah definitely the the hokiest effect in the film and john seems like totally unbothered by it like he's like oh like it's not even mentioned he doesn't even go tell eliza oh my god harris just was murdered but he does he 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 leaves the room and, and he goes to the elevator and he finds liza and jill um and they go back down to the main floor where all these other zombies are coming at him from both directions. Um, again, shoot, 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 never ending bullets. Uh, and he has them run into another room, which looks like another more because this room is just full of bodies laying on gurneys, um, including the one I do like this, the one that's like clawing its way out of its body bag. That's pretty cool. Oh, I love that. I love it. Um, yeah. I really think that some of the visuals here with the, with the corpses are really quite exciting 
Um, they do a really great job with some of the zombies makeup. Like there is a zombie whose skull is like, obviously like was having like a brain surgery. I don't know. You see, it's all peeled down. That looks really great. And there's sure is a lot of them. I mean, the whole morgue is now overflowing with the undead, which I, I dig it. I dig it. But this whole moment here where they're running around in this morgue, this re- like this revelation that's about to happen, what they reveal it really feels like such a wasted moment because all of a sudden they just throw it at you and it's just out of nowhere. And you're like, Whoa, wait, what the hell? What the fuck? Like what just happened? Are you talking about what happens with, uh, Jill? Yeah. 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 I mean, we're, we're, we're right there. Yeah. They, I mean, Jill, um, basically what happens is that zombie that rips its way out of the bag, uh, attacks, uh, Liza. So of course John shoots it away and they try to run out another door when the corpse comes out of this other room and it is Schweiky and he is just like slowly meandering towards them. John is shooting him, but nothing happens. Liza's back there with Jill. When all of a sudden Roger Jill turns on her and st- tries to attack her, like literally tries to like bite her face. John has to turn on and blow her fucking head off. And we do see her. I mean, this poor little girl's head get <laughs> head get blown off a la, you know, Tom Savini and maniac. Oh, it's such a good effect though. I'll say when it comes to the fake heads in this, this one I think is probably the best. They seem to like really capture her exact facial expression. Like right when they cut away, the mannequin looks exactly the same. Uh, The whole top of it blows off. I mean, it is honestly a very impressive headshot, but, but okay. So Jill's turning into a zombie, but why? I don't know. I mean, again, it's just kind of a WTF moment. I also question the fact that this whole film set it up to be the hotel is the, is one of the seven gates of hell, but the, 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 the final action, although the final action takes place at the hospital, which is weird because why are all these zombies becoming zombies at the hospital? If it's the hotel that's cursed, I guess the final line of the movie, or I guess because the gates of hell has been opened, it allows just the dead to anywhere to, to walk the earth. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense at the morgue at this hospital in the morgue is the final action place for, for all the action to take place when the whole film has been, Oh, it's this hotel. The seven doors hotel is the cursed place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the least of my concerns overall, because none of this makes sense, but it really is kind of shocking and surprising that they have everything go down at the hospital. Um, they do eventually though, have this moment where they, like they seem to be teleported back to the house, which I guess maybe does in some ways explain some of the inconsistencies here that this, I think that the, that the, the basement to this house being the gate of hell, it can actually maybe cause them to jump through different realms or jump teleport, whatever that may be. I think that's what's implied there. It's just not implied enough. Well, no, because they, after they shoot, um, Jill and get away from Schweiki's corpse, they run back down the stairs and they realize that they are in the tunnel back, right back in the basement of the hotel. And they're like, how can this be? We're back in the basement. And the audience is right there with them. What the fuck is going on? And it's the, the whole, there's a whole lighted pathway through the basement. That's leading them through towards this huge open space that they emerge through. And the space Roger is exactly what Schweiky was painting at the beginning of the film. It's that just black blackness with bodies laying on the ground. This is where they're at now. They step into it 
And then they turn around and they realize like, like they're trapped now. There's no exit. They look around and they're, they're, they're trapped in this vast black space, which I'm assuming is, is hell, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is what's suggested here. And they, they turn, they turn around and run towards the camera. And when they stop facing the camera, both of their eyes turn that white glassy color and i do love this close-up of john's face just in pure anguish when he realizes what has happened well and you hear the sound of like the the dead like rising up in the background like i think it's implying that the zombies are closing in um but it is it's very um very unsettling it's it's very similar to i don't know if you've ever seen the void i think it was 2016's the void but that ending clearly took some inspiration from this very practically the same ending it's a really open-ended conclusion, but I kind of like that about it. Like, there's a lot of inconsistencies here that I've had gripes with, but the way the ending ends or concludes here, like, you know, the, the note that we end on, I really think is really kind of appropriate. And it's it's bleak. It's sad. These two are fucked. It is bleak. Again, like I said, the anguished look he has on his face. And then you get that... Um... You get that voiceover before the credits roll that says, and you may face the sea of darkness and all therein may be explored. So, yeah, I mean, the, the very insinuation is that these two are definitely facing the sea of darkness because they're blind, but they're also now just trapped in this, what we are assuming is the, the darkness, this, this vast, dark, bleak landscape that is hell. Um, and that's their fate now. And it is quite depressing. It is very depressing. Uh, but overall, I mean, this movie, I think, never promised anything upbeat, aside from that great disco-infused soundtrack. Uh, because this movie is is definitely uh, <laughs> not one that intends to have any as elements of humor or laughter to it whatsoever. It's It's a very dry, very morbid horror film from beginning to end, um, which... You know, it's in its favor, but it also makes for some of the more laughable moments to be a little... They take you out of the moment a little bit. You know, there's a couple moments over the course of this film that really have not aged that well. A lot of character choices that don't make sense. Um, But, you know, if you're looking at a film, looking for a movie, looking for it to give you something truly just gruesome and violent and gory and repulsive and, and, like I said, bleak and morbid, I mean... That this does deliver in spades. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would say if you watch this film with his other two, like make it a triple feature, uh, The Gates of Hell, a.k.a. City of the Living Dead, this one in House by the Cemetery, watch them all because they are all very ma- much thematically cl- uh, connected and definitely are all about like the idea of hell and hell existing and hell being able to find its way to, to us as humans and what that can do and what it can cause people to do. Uh, and it becomes a, it's, it's, it's all three of the films are very, very dark, very morbid, very bleak. Uh, I do like the fact that like the gates of hell does play with the fact that how, um, entities from hell, but like how normal people can be forced to do something that is, Horrible because one of the most standout death scenes in the gates of hell is not one of the zombies killing somebody. It's actually a human doing it because for a reason that if we find out is not 
true. But I mean, he's just making a statement, I think, about about evil, good versus evil. And as loose as it is, because none of his films have strong stories or strong plots, but I think you can take all three of them and really thread together at least some thematic element that you can th- see that he's trying to get across with these films. But this one particularly, I just think is, is, is very um, morbid and, and the, the spider scene and the dog scene are two scenes that I think I, I, I surprise or I don't hear talked about more in the realm of standout scenes from horror. Oh, I agree. I agree. But hopefully some of our listeners who have not seen this film, I don't know why you would have gone through this whole episode if not, uh, but if that's the case, A, thank you for enjoying us that much, and B, this should be a good motivator for you to you know catch up on some classic horror cinema. And this is definitely a title that, while flawed, um, the flaws in ways almost make it more beautiful, you know? Um, I really appreciate this film and, and the fact that it is an example of, of early 80s practical effects, what they are capable of creating with little to nothing, you know, and it, it's really impressive. And I really think there's just a lot to celebrate about this movie. It's just not the characters or the storyline. <laughs> yeah. And, and just watch a filmmaker being fearless and, and just following his vision to a T without worrying about um, how it may ultimately be taken or, or, or look, because this is, this is Fulci definitely being fearless and a visionary in my, in my opinion, a filmmaker that I look up to along with, you know, all the other greats, Carpenter, Hooper, uh, Argento, Hitchcock. Uh, I think Fulci maybe gets short of the stick when, when we're talking about great horror directors, just because he's more known for his gore. But I think that he's definitely a visionary in the field of horror that should be much more respected, but, but yeah, Roger, that is the beyond AKA's uh, seven doors of death guys. Let us know your thoughts on the film, your interpretation of the film, some of the elements of the film that we question. What are your thoughts on it? But um, I feel like next week we're, we're going to be back with something a little bit more. um, Oh, I don't know. Lighthearted, you know, next week guys is Valentine's day. And it's a day for love, kisses, and and parking your car with your with your sweetheart on Lover's Lane and making out. And I'm going to tell you, I'm super excited for this one, Roger, because we were supposed to cover this exactly two years ago. And two years ago, this film was not available. Um, so when we said we were going to cover it, I own it on DVD, but you could not get a copy of it because it wasn't um, in print. But fortunately, Roger, just this past year, Arrow Video released this on Blu-ray. And so now we get to to watch it. And finally, two years later, my notes have been waiting for two years. We get to cover this. On Valentine's Day, we are talking the 1999-2000-ish slasher film starring everyone's favorite house bunny anna ferris we are finally fucking covering lovers oh my goodness look at us it's all come down to this it has you've never seen it right never seen it okay so there you go super excited uh so such nostalgia this film gives me because all i'm gonna say is is watching this film for me even though it was made in the late 90s early 2000s is like being transported back to the eighties. That's all I'll say. It's a film that has its flaws. Boy, does it have its flaws, but I feel like it's heart is in the right place. And the filmmaker was definitely a fan of the eighties slasher films. And I think it shows tremendously. 
Uh, and there's just a charming vibe that that flows through the film that I really, really hope that you dig, Roger, because you know I've been talking about this one forever. Oh, I can't wait. What a Valentine's treat for our lovers, our fans. Yes, yes. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen Lover's Lane, guys, you better check it out before we cover it. But yeah, until then, guys, you know, grab some tarantulas, maybe a... <laughs> Uh, a, a seeing eye dog or two and have a, have a wonderful night. Yes. Listeners. I hope you all enjoy the beyond as much as we did. Um, even if we were a little harsh on it, it does not mean we didn't love it. And I can't wait for this next one because you know, I love Valentine's day and uh, I fucking love Anna Ferris. So let me just throw that out there as well. Perfect. Perfect. Cannot wait. So guys next week, lovers lane on Valentine's day. So with that, good night. Good night.